New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. We're all familiar with the aspect of fear that strangles us, holds us back, and keeps us living lives filled with stress, unhappiness, and emptiness. This kind of fear creates chronic anxiety, depression, and disconnection. However, our guest today will be sharing a hidden aspect of this same fear that affords us the opportunity to live a life with fear as an ally rather than a foe. In her research and work as psychotherapist, Dr. Carla Manley has discovered a way out of destructive fear and how we can turn it into transformational healing. She tells us the aspects of fear that we ignore or run from are often the very aspects that contain the subtle messages we need the most. Dr. Carla Marie Manley is a licensed psychotherapist whose focus is on fear-based disorders such as trauma, anxiety, and depression, as well as women's issues. With her doctorate in clinical psychology and her master's degree in counseling, Manley merges her psychotherapy skills with her writing expertise to offer easily understood guidance. Dr. Manley is passionate about creating healing from the inside out and maintains her clinical practice in Sonoma County, California, just north of San Francisco. She's the author of Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. And also she's the author of Aging Joyfully. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we can release our battle with fear and turn it into an ally with our guest, Dr. Carla Manley. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Carla, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine. Thank you for having me. It's a joy. Oh, thank you so much for coming and taking the time. Let's talk about fear. Fear is primal. We all know that fear just is a natural instinct that we have. But how does it then become such a stranglehold on our life? It's such a good question because it goes to the root of things. I think so many times that we forget how primal fear is, and we forget that it's what tends to operate us and push us in life unless we slow it down. 
And so, of course, when we're born, we have a little bit of fear, and that's a fear of, you know, when we, we want to be fed, we want to sleep, and we want to feel warm and safe. And that primitive instinctive fear of wanting to be loved and, and held safe um, as we grow, as we age, and we run into things in life that are difficult for us, our fears become enhanced. They become more powerful. As we begin to have life experiences where we feel unwanted, unloved, unworthy, we start to retract and close down and feel guarded. We don't realize, nobody teaches us, nobody, and very few people understand, that is the beginnings of fear in a way that starts to strangle us in young adulthood and adulthood. So you're saying that it oftentimes goes back to our very early years, our childhood, very early on, when when it starts to become more than just a reaction to real danger, but it becomes something else. Exactly. And the way that I like to look at fear in a healthy way is that we want to be tribal, right? We want to be part of a group because it keeps us safe. The wolves won't get us if we're included, right? And so that's a part of being tribal that's really helpful for us. Yet sometimes our tribe or outside tribes, you know, society or growing up in a family that's very difficult, we start getting messages that tell us that we do something wrong, that we we should be something other than we are, that we need to conform, that we should be doing this or should be doing that or shouldn't be doing this. And so that starts this sense in us, this percolating sense that we are not okay, that we are not safe as we inherently are. And these messages called psychic introverts, I like to look at them as sticky notes. I think of them as sticky notes that we start pinning on the inside of ourselves. And if we're lucky, we grow up in a household, an environment, we get lots of positive, yummy, sticky notes that say, you are loved, you are good, you are wonderful. Oh, you made a mistake? That's okay, let's figure out how to correct it. Lots of positive sticky notes grow inside. Yet, for many of us, in fact, I believe most of us, Often in childhood, whether from parents, brothers, sisters, friends, the schoolyard, teachers, right? We start getting these negative sticky notes that tell us, you're not right. You're not good enough. There's something wrong with you. We don't. We don't have our prefrontal cortex isn't developed at that point. And so young brains take in all of this information as the truth. And that becomes the fear-based truth that so many of us are raised in and live in. So what I'm seeing with what you're saying is that the information, for the most part, that we get about ourselves early on mm -hmm. is through the eyes of others. You know, it's kind of like we look for that reflection, yes. we look for that approval, yes. and and when it doesn't come to us, then we start to, what happens? Well, the brain actually has mirror neurons. So you're picking up a very, very good point and a very true scientific piece is that children, we have mirror neurons. So if you're looking at me with kindness and love, I'm going to be like, ha, ah, I'm safe, I'm loved. If you're looking at me with antipathy, disgust, uh, resentment, I'm going to be picking that up in my brain and saying, 
I'm not good. I'm not loved. Oh, I'm thinking jealousy. Oh, yes. Oh, like jealousy, like may have nothing to do with me. Maybe I am really great. I'm beautiful and I'm creative. And then somebody looks at me and they're jealous. And then that that's an odd sort of thing. It's not that anything is with me. It's it's something else going on. And that is so true. And so I'll speak to the jealousy piece for, for a minute. Um, jealousy and envy are very close to each other. They're cousins, so to speak. And so often if somebody's coveting something that we have or something that a relationship that we have, then we what, why, why would that bring something up in us? Even if it's not about us, it brings up a sense of unsafety mm-hmm. because somebody wants what we are or what we have and it's okay now you know it's natural to be jealous it's natural to feel envy but it's what we do with that that matters Mm -hmm. do we acknowledge oh i love her purse oh i love the color of her eyes oh my goodness she's beautiful and leave it at that or do we actually give off some energy that would make you feel as though I'm coming after you or do something. And that's where our emotions, where we have the power to make them toxic or non-toxic. So in this, that's what you would call destructive fear, mm-hmm. that kind of fear that that is we react and then we start feeling bad about ourselves mm-hmm. and then it causes all sorts of trauma and we start believing that and it just leads down this other whole path. And then you you talk about fear in two ways. Mm-hmm. So let's let's kind of flesh that out a bit. Okay. So I'm going to use an example that works really well with something that you had just said. As a child, we take on things that aren't ours, right? Because the prefrontal cortex doesn't differentiate. It doesn't have the capacity to reason. So let's say a parent Parents are getting divorced. That's why so many children think it's something they did because they see it as a reflection of something that must be them. So they get this message, mommy and daddy are divorcing. I am bad. I've caused this. I've done something wrong. That's destructive fear at work, starting to get a hold of that child and say, there's something with you that's caused mommy and daddy to divorce. And sometimes we actually have a toxic mommy or daddy, and I've seen this you know, in therapy where the mommy will blame the child or the daddy will and say, you've caused this. You know, right. your temper tantrums or your financial needs. So the child does, in that case, more hold on to the fear, the destructive fear, the messages. Destructive fear, we can simplify to say, is the messages, an irrational message within the self that's come from some source, self or other, that tells us we are not good enough, we are not safe, we are not worthy, and they all come down to us to not being safe, not being and loved. Isn't the beginning of that always something, some strategy to help us cope with that sort of stuff that comes at us? I mean, in the very beginning, <sighs> absolutely, it's, it's, it's coming from a good source, like it's trying mm-hmm. to make us safe. Such a good point. They're called defense mechanisms. And so the psyche, when we're young, it doesn't know how to cope with all of this. So it starts building these defenses. Some people's defenses 
make them very angry and act out. Some people learn to shut down and retract, right? So those help a child who's very vulnerable, who doesn't really have the ability to reason or manage or really affect a lot of change in the situation. So the defense mechanisms are often very helpful to get a child through childhood. Mommy and daddy are fighting in the bedroom. What does the child do? It zones out. It runs out and plays. It does something because it cannot bear that type of horror at such a young age, right? So these are defense mechanisms. Unfortunately, they carry on to adulthood, right? So now let's segue into constructive fear. So I like to see fear as a being, as a living and breathing entity. Why do I do that? So that we can start talking to fear and we can start making it alive in the room. Otherwise, people, self-included, forget about it and think, me, I'm tough. I'm not afraid of fear. And we don't even think about it. But when we start realizing that fear is like a bully on one side and on the other side, a very loving goddess, so to speak. And we want to see both sides of fear. And so constructive fear is the other side of fear. Constructive fear, so now this child is, let's say the child's grown up, mommy and daddy have divorced, and child is terrified of relationship or keeps getting into brutal relationship after brutal relationship because mommy and daddy were brutal with each other. So let's talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Carla Manley, and she is the author of Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. And if you want to know more about her, you can go to her website, drcarlamanley.com, and that's spelled D-R, Carla, C-A-R-L-A, Manley, M-A-N-L-Y, drcarlamanley.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. Carla Manley, and she is a psychotherapist and also the author of Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. And Carla, we're talking about destructive and constructive Mm -hmm. fear, and in your book, you personify it, so Mm -hmm. to speak. You say, "This, this fear, you know, destructive fear, it smiles when you have 
escaped from from something and you go into hiding and you pull the covers up over your head and it says, yay, yay. But that may not be so effective in your life. And um, some people might even look at it like the little devil on one side and the little angel on the other side speaking yes. to you. So yes. uh, I'd love to go back to when you first decided to not be pushed by that destructive fear. And you turned around and said, we're going to talk. Do you, do you remember that moment? <laughs> I do remember that. I was, um, just briefly, I lived a life that I did not realize was a lie. I just knew it wasn't healthy, and I was not in a good marriage and not in a good place and working in a job that was lucrative for other people, but very destructive for me. And I finally found the courage to upend my life and went back to school to earn my doctorate. And it was in the middle of that program. In fact, when I first went to the campus, and I was like, there are people like me in the world. These are my, this is my home. This is my tribe. This is my kula. And people who talk like me and were spiritual like me and interested in things other than money like me. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is it. And I felt like I was breathing and eating for the first time in my life. It was eating food for my soul. And so in the course of that, I came to understand it was a really big slap upside the head that I had run my life by fear. And had somebody told me that five years before or even a year before, I would have said, me? I'm strong. I'm tough. I can deal with any business situation. I'm a mother. I can do that. No, 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 no. But what I realized, it was fear. And so I decided to research fear. And one of my um, mentors had said, you know, why don't you work with fear archetypally? And I said, okay. And I had come to understand what archetypally meant, which are just basically, we have these images in all of our psyches, no matter the language we speak, all around the world. If I say queen in any language, that will have a meaning. If I say orphan, if I say hero, if I say fool, so these are archetypes. If I say fear, everyone will, if they sit and think about it, will be able to get an image of fear of what that means to them as an individual, yet collectively we'll all feel it. And so I took um, that mentor's advice and I really sat down with fear and remember that fear came to me and it was definitely a large, white, silver-bearded creature and he was just beautiful but intimidating. And, you know, I talked with him and I, and then he said, lie down and pointed to a bed and it was a small bed. It was a twin bed. And I said, oh, I don't want to lie down next to you. I remember thinking that and feeling that. But basically what I came to understand was that he was going to lie next to me and I was going to lie next to him. And it actually gives me tears when I think about it because it was a turning point in my life. I realized that working with fear was my calling and that my calling was to help other people understand their fears so that if I had it in my power, I would help people not be as stuck as long as I was stuck. I wanted to help other people break free of their fear so that nobody had to live in that sort of 
tyrannical dark space where my gifts, my light, and my role modeling for my very own children, my nieces and nephews, was a dark one, not a light one. And so that was the turning point. I realized it took me time to metabolize it, but that my journey was to help people understand that fear, we can either run from it, we can hide from it, or we can see the other side and allow that side to be our best, most wonderful and beautiful (laughs) non-denominational ally in life. (laughs) You know, that just reminds me um, that that story takes me back when you, when you, lay down on the bed with fear, you know, figuratively or, or you vision that. Uh, it reminds me of that quote that I used of yours in the introduction, the aspects of fear that we ignore or run from are often the very aspects that contain the subtle messages we need the most. Yes. So it's like talking to that fear there's a message that that fear is giving us. Is that what you're you're saying? Indeed, and that is the beauty. Here's the difficult part. It's such a good point because destructive fear is loud, cantankerous, moody, goal-directed, and very big, which is our outside world. This is the daily world we live in is riddled with destructive fear. It's one of the reasons I can't bear to listen to newscasts, right? I just, they drive me crazy because that's what they're, they're causing an uprising of fear. And with fear comes hatred, right? And sadness and dis- depression and exhaustion and all of that, right? So if here's the piece is that constructive fear is loving, Kind, soft, genuine, true. (laughs) And maybe not so loud? Not so loud. Not so loud, Justine. That's the the important part to know is that constructive fear is always there, but we miss it. We are going so fast. We are so burnt out. We are so stressed that we don't know to listen. And that is the message that I tried to get across to slow it down. If you live the life that is such a busy one like I lived for so long, I had no idea because fear was running my days. I had no idea. It was, here's what I liken it to, being in the middle of the ocean and you're um, paddling, 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 paddling with no end in sight and all of your energy is spent paddling, just staying above the water and trying to avoid the sharks. And then if you slow down, whether it's to do some self-reflection or some meditation. Now you have a little inner tube. You have a little lifesaver, so to speak, that you can hold on to. And that's how then when you're doing that, you're able to start listening more to constructive fear. Here's the beauty of it. Then once you're able to rest a little bit and quiet a little bit, what do you see off on the horizon? The little island with the water and the dates and the sand and the resting place that may have been there all along. You just didn't see it because you were so busy paddling and paddling and paddling. And that's, so then how do we get there? How do we get to that island? And that's how what constructive fear will start doing. It will help you start seeing that the island exists, that transformation exists, the potential is there. And then this is what gets a little even more difficult is then we have to take action. 
we have to have a commitment to changing our lives, not just rewiring our brains by practicing, practicing that which we want, but then taking daily steps to get a little closer to the life of our dreams. That life of our dreams is on that island. And only we know what's on that island. Only we know what we are meant to be doing with our lives. And then the calmer we get, the more we rest, the more we listen to constructive fear, we can start taking the steps that lead us. And that's the transformational part of fear. So like it's, it's all the same fear, uh, it, it kind of, because yeah. the fear is giving us a message and so what is that mechanism? What is that? Maybe you, all right, you're in a therapy session and somebody, there's a client with you and you're listening and listening to this client. They came in for some reason and they finally, maybe somebody said, you better go to therapy. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, or for some reason they made the decision to come to therapy and so they're with you, but they think they have it all figured out. And they, you've probably gone through this so many times with people. What is it that you're listening for when you are trying to help someone who doesn't know how to even begin the journey of that self-reflection? Okay, such a good question, Justine. I liken myself to, I have a very unique way of doing therapy. Um, I liken myself to a hound dog because I sit there and I listen and I soak in energy as much as, you know, is safe for me. And I watch body posture. I watch neurolinguistically what the person is saying. I listen. I feel. And then, here's a very good example. And, of course, no names. And I'll kind of weave a couple clients together. So it's such a common theme, right? So that there's nothing identifying. But often, a woman or a man will come in. But I'll, I'll use women, because this is a very common theme. They'll come in and they'll say, I'm very unhappy in my relationship. I'm not sleeping well. I'm not eating well. I'm not exercising. I'm not really, something's off. And then often, not always, they'll eventually come to tell me that they're having an affair. And so they're looking outside the relationship, but they feel guilty for that. And that will often come up where they'll finally say, you know, I feel guilty or it's not right for me or I know I shouldn't be doing this. Sometimes they'll be carrying on multiple affairs, whether it's a male or a female. And so again, I'm just tracking and doing reflective listening, feeding back. Yet where, so I'm tracking, where are they happy, where are they unhappy? What I will often find is that they'll use, they'll say something, and I'm thinking of a particular woman just very recently who said, I think I love him. Well, I don't really love him. What I love is the stability. I love that he has a good job. And then we'll continue on. So that's like a, a truth right there. It, kind of, that truth. It's, like, it's like a little light goes off. Yes. But you don't pursue it right there, do you? I mean, you don't say stop or there or anything, but you let it kind of unfold? I, l- I continue to let it unfold 
to see what so more is coming. It. But I noticed it. Yeah. Here is a truth. Mm-hmm. They, she was finally able, and of course, I don't judge one way or mm-hmm. another. It's just, it's just there. So we continue on, and we might talk about the other man she's seeing, or where she does get joy, or where he does get joy. Whatever's happening, and then I'll say, okay, so you know, I noticed something when you were talking. When you were talking about so-and-so, you know, the key thing you said about your relationship with him, you don't like this, you don't like this, you don't like this, you don't like the sex, you know, there's this, there's this. But the key thing you said is that you really like that he has a stable job and you have a roof over your head. Can you tell me more about that? And then the person might start talking about, well, yeah, you know, I'm afraid, you know, I don't have a very high paying job or we bought a home together or whatever the deal is, right? And so then we just work with that. So here, destructive fear was controlling the relationship. So you might go back to the childhood and even find that initial event. Yes. So we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Carla Manley, and she's the author of Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Carla Marie Manley, and she is the author of Joy from Fear. And we're we're talking about those those moments like in therapy when someone starts to break through and you start to see some initial wounding mm-hmm. that goes way back. And 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 once that is revealed, so to speak, in this safe environment, uh, what is your advice, or what what? How does it become healed? It's interesting, Justine. I steer clear of advice, right? And I help clients come up with their own advice, right? So in this situation, we can imagine that this client, um, I'm, I would say, often say something like this, you know, so what is your moral code? How do you feel about extramarital affairs? Or, ex, you know, really, you know, how do you feel about that? And if they say, as they 99% of the time do, oh, I don't agree with them. I don't think they're a good idea. <laughs> And and would you want your partner to be doing that to you? Oh, no way. So then we come to their truth in a non-judgmental way is that they don't really agree with what they are doing. So they're building on their own truth in a very subtle, gentle way, or maybe not so subtle. But so then they can see where there's a sense of discord. They're acting in one way that's making them feel badly about themselves because they're not acting in accord with their truth. So as we start working with that again in a very non-judgmental 
way and sometimes taking it back to childhood. Well, as, as you were saying, you know, sometimes people link it back and say, God, my mom was cheating on everyone or my mom, you know, stole my high school boyfriend. I've heard things like that, right? So they're afraid of being vulnerable. They're afraid of being in love. So we're working on it and I'll often give homework. And here's why I give homework. People expect a 50-minute session of psychotherapy to do life-changing, um, you know, transformation. And it can. But often, if we take that 50 minutes and do some homework with it, we're, we're double-timing it, maybe triple-timing it, where we're really increasing the benefits of that therapy session through journaling or, or drawing something and um, meditation, something to actually shorten their therapy time with me because that's, you know, I don't, I'm mindful that it costs money, right, and time. And, but it also gives them a sense of personal power, which is what we're working to build. The sense that this person is learning more about who they are, what they want in life, how to listen to have that talk with destructive fear and constructive fear, and then give them the capacity to start making steps forward. So the more that I take that stance, and here's a beautiful tidbit, the client that I was am referring to, get a message from her because I always help people with referrals, right? Happy to, whether they're my client or not. I get a message from her saying, may I please have a referral for a marriage therapist? Mm. And isn't that, it's just gives me shivers because she, she left my office knowing I didn't judge any course that she took, but clearly she was unhappy living a, you know, quadruple life, so to speak, because there was a lot going on for her. And here she of her own accord decided that what she wanted to do was to work on something in her current relationship where that healing, where there might be a lot of healing potential. In our society, in our culture, in Western culture at least, um, we often go and are encouraged to go for the quick fix. You know, what you're talking about is, is deep reflection, taking time, as you said earlier, slowing down, you know, listening to that voice that's not as loud as the voice of destructive fear, that constructive fear is, or, or, or their therapeutic or um, transformational mm-hmm. voice is not as loud. And so it's, we go to addictions, you know, like alcohol or drugs or over, over buying or, 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 you know, too much television or whatever it is, even sexual addictions. Uh, or or we could go for uh, pharmaceuticals and just pop a pill. Oh, come on, let me feel better. Just let me pop a pill. Won't you just give me a, a prescription? Do you find that, that people are often butting up against that desire for the quick fix? Absolutely. I devote almost an entire chapter on that in Joy from Fear because— um, of people who see a a caregiver, a primary caregiver for a mental health issue, 57% are given medication only with no psychotherapy. That is nearly, you know, out of 10 people, 
Six of those people are not given treatment to address the underlying issue. And you're right. We are and who do I fault? I don't fault the, the physicians because they're, you know, given little spots of time, ten minutes per patient or whatever it is. And many of them are not psychiatrists, right? And so they're doing the best they can, th- trying to throw a not so magic bullet at the issue. And who benefits? The health the healthcare system, you know, the big systems, the insurance carriers and the pharmaceutical companies are just rolling in money. Who is hurting? Our population, our women, our men, our children, our elders. And so whether it's pharmaceutical that is used to soothe the symptoms, because we're not addressing generally the underlying issues, whether it's overuse of alcohol, as you said, you know, marijuana to numb out. And now we've made that, you know, and again, I'm not talking about occasional use of any product. I'm talking about people who use it as a way to self, self-soothe day in and day out. And then we look at, as you said, porn addiction, which is rampant and something I treat. And it's, you know, it's porn is as addictive, more addictive as than heroin, right? And it also encourages really isolated behaviors. So I get a little, little nuts on that because it has lots of wide-reaching effects, including harming children who often witness parents using porn. And they, some of them have become my clients who it's just memories in their head that they cannot erase. I mean, able to help them move forward. But anyway. So you're just bringing up a whole pool of information that many of us have not even thought about, about about porn porn and and the way the tentacles that goes out into a whole family configuration or, oh, or relationships. It's yeah. its own topic. I worked with juvenile probation with sexual offender unit for six years. It was some of the most heartwarming work I ever did because I was really able to get in and break some of the intergenerational cycles. Um, so, but so the really getting back to your to your piece is so we have all of these addictions, spending, sex, um, you know, overwork, over whatever, overeating, every all of these things, and they're masking the underlying issues. And you're right, we are in a quick fix society. So here's where I start asking people: if that works, if the quick fix society works, why the heck are things getting worse? Why do we have more drug abuse, more domestic violence, more hatred in the world than ever? It's because the quick fix mentality doesn't work. And I will challenge anybody to go toe to toe with me on that because the only way that works, the only way I have ever found that really works is to address the underlying issues, to have the courage, the strength, the vulnerability, the self-honesty to dig deep and address what is wounding you. And as a result, when we are wounded, we go about the world wounding other people. So I know that you talk about we have three choices in facing reality. And uh, one of the choices is to to es- go to escape, and we've just been talking about that choice in in addictions and you know just soothing ourselves in whatever sort of addiction we have, whether it's pharmaceuticals or or porn or or overworking or whatever it is. So that's escape. 
Another one is you call it um, uh, passively accepting or, or even sometimes irritably accepting what is. Like, let's say we're in a bad relationship or a relationship that's abusive, and we just sort of cave in and just accept it. This is just mm-hmm. whatever. And then there's a third way. So I'd love for you to talk about those two ways and then tell us about the third way, which I know you feel is much more effective in our lives. Right. So when we choose to self-soothe, and again, I really want to highlight, I'm not talking about people who need medication in order to function. So medication can can. The caveat would be it can kickstart us. Absolutely. Let's say we're go, we've gone through a terrible. I mean, I know for me, I at one point in my life, I was in such stress, I've become uh, agoraphobic. Mm-hmm. I, I I couldn't even decide what to wear in the morning, and uh, someone realized where I was, and a, a psychiatrist, when he heard all that I was going through, he said. Look, let me just prescribe this medication, and it really kickstarted me. Mm-hmm. I I didn't stay on it. Maybe I was on the medication for a month, mm-hmm. you know, and then I was back out. So that's not what you're talking about. Not at all. If it is done mindfully, and the person is given the support they need to, here's what happens for many people. Um, They're given a prescription for anxiety, for depression, for whatever it is, and no medical tests are done. No lab tests are done. It's just a primary care physician doing the best they can. They write a script, and then people come into me, they're self-medicating, they're using them, they're not using them, they're going on them, they're going off them, they're not being tracked. And then, but again, for somebody who needs medication in order to get out of bed, in order to not commit suicide and not go through these terrible ups and downs, in order not to be so anxious or agoraphobic that they can't leave the home or they can't function at work, of course, you need it as much as somebody with a broken leg needs a cast and a crutch. But the idea is we don't take somebody with a broken leg and not set it before we put the cast on and give them the crutch. We absolutely tend to the fracture. We tend to the broken leg. We don't leave a leg in two pieces, but that's what we do with mental state, mm-hmm. right? We just put a cast on it. Here you go. Here's a crutch. Okay, bye-bye now. No, I'm saying, fine, use the cast. Use the crutch if you need it, but make sure you're getting treatment for the broken bone in your psyche. So you're saying do the work. Do, do the work. Do the work. Do, sit, sit on the cushion. Do the work. Uh, mm-hmm. Take the time. Well, I, I'd like to talk about uh, psychotherapy or talk about having a, a, a witness to your life. Um, but first, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Carla Marie Manley, and she's the author of Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. And she also has a, another book, too, that is on a, a wholly different subject, but also very interesting to many of us, Aging Joyfully, A Woman's Guide to Optimal Health, Relationships, and Fulfillment for Her 50s and Beyond. So that's another book that you penned, which is looks really interesting. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Carla Manley, and she's the author of Joy from Fear. And we're talking about that. And we, we were talking in the previous uh, segment about the, the choices we have to facing reality, escapism or passively accepting it or irritably accepting it, one or the other. And then the third one, to to face it and, and to start to work for change. So can you flesh that out a bit for us? Absolutely. I'll stay with the same example, Justine, about relationships. So we can use that in looking at a marriage or a partnership. If it's not going well, as many relationships don't, right, we can choose to self-soothe. We can go home. We can drink our way through it. We can, you know, self-medicate with lots of marijuana. We can leave and, you know, go and overwork. We can. So that's escaping. That's the escaping. We can go and have sex with multiple partners or one, one partner outside. We can escape the marriage or the relationship. That's one option. That is an absolute option people have. Um, second option and we can use this as a template for, for almost anything in life, these different options we have. The second one is to stay in the relationship, to put salt in the partner's oatmeal or a fly, you know, <laughs> something to just be passive aggressive and get back. We can, you know, steal money. We can do all these things sort of as a quiet acceptance. And sometimes it's it's, it's quiet. It sometimes can be it's also passive. Subversive too. Or it can also be subversive. It can be the form of retracting or stonewalling, not participating in the relationship, being unwilling to go to therapy, shutting down, yelling, being verbally abusive. Right? That's you're staying in the relationship, but you're, you know, not really making it work. You're doing nothing. Then we have a third choice. And sometimes those, you know, that second choice, we can either make it worse or we can do nothing or we can just play games, right? Third choice is to change it. Change it. You don't like it. You've done everything you can and you need to leave the relationship. Then leave. Do your work. Invite the partner to therapy. The partner won't go to therapy, you know, or the partner's abusive and you have no hope. Then you must leave. To stay in phase two is not going to help anyone. And if there are children involved, then it's very poor modeling for the children. The other option, and this can happen if, again, in any sort of partnership, if both are willing, then do the work. Salvage the relationship. And, and really do the work to stay in it in a healthy way. And there's also sort of a a strange option in that realm as well, that if you are in a relationship and you cannot leave it, you cannot shift it, and we can think of this even in terms of political relationships, right? That sometimes, you know, we we don't really feel like we have a choice. We don't want to self-soothe in option one. We don't want to be toxic, but because of financial circumstances or other circumstances or being a bit handcuffed because there's only so much we can do, you know, in a political relationship, that idea, that then maybe we just need to be in a place of quiet acceptance. And maybe that is our option of saying, and that's different from the second acceptance, but this is one that says, 
you know, for this reason, I cannot affect the degree of change that I want to in this relationship, but I will, watch me, I will affect change elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Maybe I will volunteer. Maybe I will be part of a march. Maybe I will do this. Maybe I will, if my, you know, I am staying here because I'm not happy, but I can't leave my husband because he's very, very sick and there's no one to care for him, but I will start creating a life of my own outside of that. I will start joining art groups or exercise so groups. So you're 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 working like in this parallel. Yes. I, I have to stay here and do this, but parallel to that, yes. I'm having joy in my life and creativity and calling yes. good people in my life. And I asked you this question in the last segment as we were ending the last segment. Do we need to go to a therapist? Do we need psychotherapy or do we need a, a witness of some sort? What What's your idea? Can we do this alone? It's such a good point, Justine. I left a yoga class on Sunday and spoke with a yoga buddy, a friend of mine outside. I said, how are you? I could tell she was tired. And she said, oh, thank you for asking. And she went on for about 10 minutes about all of the difficulties she's facing. And I said, is there anything I can do? And she said, you just being here is my witness. Mm. You just listening. That is plenty good enough. Now, this particular woman is very together and has lots of skills in, you know, in mental health. So she might not need a therapist. But for me, there's no shame in seeing a therapist. Not just because I'm a therapist, but because we have, have no second thought about going to the doctor if we have a nasty flu or if our blood pressure is too high or to the dentist when we have a toothache. But here, the most important part of our being, our psychological well-being, we're embarrassed or don't want to spend the money or the time for therapy. And that's where I get to the question of if you had a choice of physical or mental health, which would you pick? Me? Hands down, I know. I wouldn't want to lose either, of course. But if I had to choose between being psychologically well and physically well, you could have the most gorgeous, beautiful, perfect physical body and top health. And if you're depressed, anxious, riddled with you know PTSD trauma, how much good is that physical body going to do you? Not much good. So for me, I look at mental health care and having that witness in a therapist, in a spiritual advisor, in a woman's group, in a best friend, in bibliotherapy, a book that you trust that you can read and do work in, not just a self-help book where you're reading and not doing the work because you must engage, which is why I wrote Joy from Fear the way I did, or, or a book club where you can create a sacred, safe, confidential, really important, confidential space to do your work. I do believe witnessing is so important. Because we're humans. We love to be loved. We love to be seen. And many of us, going back to childhood, were never loved or seen in the way that we needed to be. And therapy, if done properly, gives the client the opportunity to experience the unconditional, this is very Carl Rogers, right? Um, the unconditional positive regard and the empathy that is so needed in in life and that is one of the benefits of therapy and even that alone can take you really far yes. in your journey yes. of self uh revelation and healing yes 
And I'm thinking, too, when the way that you work, there was something that popped out at me in your book, um, you, and you give some wonderful examples, which we don't have time to go into today, but, but they're just great examples of case studies that you've, of course, you're not naming the actual person and, and so forth, and, but they're, they're wonderful examples. And there was one in particular where um, it was really hard, I think it was a man, it was really, really hard for him once he opened up to even thinking about talking about maybe his childhood or something or some trauma. It was really hard for him. And so you you would say, okay, zero to yes. ten. <laughs> what is your emotional state? And and it gave him some power mm-hmm. to to know whether to go forward or not. To can't describe that that process. I thought it was so effective. I actually use that a lot because for a therapist, my lingo, being in touch with my feelings, easy for me, right? Because I do it for a living. For many people, you say, how are you feeling? And for men in particular, they are given, and our culture gives them two emotions, fine and anger. (laughs) I'm fine, I'm angry. And other than that, our men are not allowed to be sad. They're not really supposed to be particularly joyful to, to feel all this array of feelings. So to be able to break through to that, and also it happens with my female clients because many of them were taught to be shut down and withdrawn as children. So when you use a scale, one to 10 or zero to 10, and you know, well, how are you feeling about that? Well, I don't really like my boss. Okay, okay, tell me more about that. Well, I don't really know. All I know is, is no, I don't like him. Oh, so you don't like. Okay, what does that feel like? Well, maybe it's not liking, maybe it's hate. I hate my boss. Oh, okay. Wow. And then you're so on a scale of one to 10, how much do you hate your boss? One being nothing or, you know, zero, we could use zero. 10 being like the most horrific hatred you could ever imagine. Oh, wow. When you put it that way, am I allowed to feel a nine? (laughs) (laughs) You're allowed to feel anything you want. We just don't want to act out on it. We don't want to do something to the boss. We just want to acknowledge you're you're feeling very, very angry at the boss. That's a big feeling a nine. So it starts giving it a space, a context, a safe way to see that it's okay to feel a nine of anger. It's absolutely okay. We just don't want to act on it. Yes, exactly. So, uh, all right, you've given us a lot to chew on here in, in really discovering how we can turn fear into an ally yes. and to, to not be afraid. I, I just thought, thank you so much. For, oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. writing this and putting this together and helping us understand better how to make fear an ally and not to be afraid of being afraid. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Carla Marie Manley. She's the author of Aging Joyfully, A Woman's Guide to Optimal Health, Relationships, and Fulfillment for Her 50s and Beyond. So there's one book. And the book we've been talking about today is Joy from Fear, Create the life of your dreams by making fear your friend. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to our website, drcarlamanley.com. And I'm going to spell that, Dr. D R 
Carla, C-A-R-L-A, Manley, M-A-N-L-Y, dot com, Dr. Carla, Manly.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3680. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.